This Marketplace podcast is supported by Invest Puerto Rico. Build the future in paradise. Puerto Rico, a hub for innovators brimming with world-class talent and a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem. Learn more at investpr.org backslash marketplace today. Dell Technologies is celebrating 40 years with anniversary savings on their most popular tech, like the XPS 13 Plus, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Save now at dell.com slash deals. I'm sorry, soft landing? Please. How about no landing? From American Public Media, this is Marketplace. In Los Angeles, I'm Kai Rizdal. It is Thursday today. This one's the 25th of January. Good as always to have you along, everybody. I do believe the phrase you're looking for here is upside surprise. It came this morning. Economic growth October through New Year's last year annualized, of course, was 3.3 percent, better by more than half than people had been guessing for the whole year, 3.1 percent. That is the data. The analysis comes to us from Wendy Edelberg. She's the director of the Hamilton Project and a senior fellow at Brookings. Wendy, good to have you back on. Very happy to be here, and particularly with this good news. I was just going to say. So, uh, good news we'll get to in a second. I do want to know, though, whether you were surprised, as I was, honestly. There was a bunch in this report that surprised me. Uh, but, uh, and even knowing all of the inputs that, you know, the statistical agency was using, yeah, there yep. was a bunch in it that surprised me, for sure. All right. Well, give me just a good tick. It's only a half hour program. Tick through a couple of things that surprised you. So state and local spending was particularly mm-hmm. strong uh, in a way that surprised me. I think state and local governments are finally finding people to hire and spending uh, the money in effective ways that they had gotten through the fiscal support. Construction spending for businesses and homes was particularly strong. It's down because of monetary policy being so mm-hmm. tight, but mm-hmm. still surprisingly high. Inventories were surprisingly strong. You know, they we know precious little actually about inventories at this point, but... Hmm. If they're really this strong, suggest some optimism, you know, that businesses think demand is going to stay high. And of course, yet again, consumer spending surprise to the upside. But there, I think I have a little bit of insight as to why consumer spending keeps surprising us. Okay, so two things. Number one, we're going to hear from Stephanie Hughes here in about three and a half minutes about the specifics of consumer spending. But I went back uh, this morning knowing we were going to talk to you and listen to our last interview, which was like November last year. And one of the things you said was for this economy to come back down to earth, consumers need to stop spending. And yet, Wendy Edelberg, and yet. (laughs) And yet, but here's what I have learned since I made that claim. Uh, As I was looking at consumer spending surprise to the upside quarter after quarter after quarter, Mm -hmm. what I have learned is that immigration has been at a much higher pace Hmm. than I thought it was in 22 and in 2023. Hmm. And immigrants spend money. So real consumer spending was 2.8% last quarter at an annual rate. My back of the envelope is that about a quarter percentage of that, Mm -hmm. quarter percentage point of that owes to the surprising pace of immigration. Huh. Huh. Um, What do you think about my uh, uh, not, uh, well, maybe a little bit flip, but not really flip thing about no landing? Is it possible that we're going to skip the runway altogether and just take off again? 
Well, the, the economy has slowed in a bunch of important ways since 2022 in a way that monetary policy has really been instrumental about. The labor market really has slowed. Yeah. The housing market really has slowed. So I don't want to jinx it and I don't want to be wrong. I think I'm more worried about jinxing it, hmm. I think. But yeah, I think We've landed softly. Hmm. Interesting. So along those lines, your Jay Powell, you wake up this morning or he got it last night, probably. You see this and, and with the caveat that Chair Powell only wants, you know, good things for this economy and the people in it. Are you thinking, oh, man, are you thinking, oh, man? <laughs> so we have two quarters in a row with inflation at the Fed's target. The Their right. preferred measure right. is a target. Uh, had I not thought what I now think about population growth, mm-hmm. um, I would have said hold steady because we need the labor market to continue slowing. Now I kind of think given population growth, this might be the labor market that we're going to have for a little while. I think he starts thinking about cutting. Mm. I can't believe I'm saying those words. Wow. You heard it here first, folks. You heard it here first. Wendy Edelberg, she runs the Hamilton Project. She's a senior fellow uh, as well at Brookings. Wendy, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Talk to you soon. Wall Street today, strong growth, solid labor market. Yeah, traders like that. We'll have details when we do the numbers. So, as Wendy mentioned, that unexpected bump in fourth quarter economic growth reflects, among other things, more consumer spending on both goods and services. Some of the things we bought more of in the last three months of 2023, hotel stays, meals out, and software. So we sent Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes off to see how business has been going at a hotel and a restaurant and a shop that sells video games. Canton Games in Baltimore sells vintage video game consoles and cartridges. Ophelia Hayes works there and says lots of customers, including her, are drawn to the games they played when they were kids. Her favorite is Super Mario World. You could play, like, the first bar of music from that, and I will be, like, instantly just enamored. (laughs) Hayes says most video games run for between $10 and $20. Some rare ones can go for closer to $100. She says people have been stocking up in the cold weather. And in the hierarchy of needs, software like video games can meet a pretty important one. Once you have your basic necessities filled, I think one of the first things I go to is, what am I going to do that's fun? A few blocks south, right by the harbor, Cooper's Tavern features eight different kinds of burgers, starting at $15. The general manager, whose name is actually Colin Burger, says snow and cold weather have been bringing people to the pub. So that obviously drives business to places where the atmosphere is warm and inviting and there's a fireplace. Across the street, the Sagamore Pendry Baltimore is a luxury hotel built out on a pier. Good morning. Thank you for calling Sagamore Pendry Baltimore. On a tour, hotel manager Amanda Santiago points out a vending machine for champagne. She only takes tokens, so you can buy them from the front desk. It's $25 for a split, um, but she stays open all day and all night. Santiago says in high season, rooms started around $500 a night. 
Lots of people come for the pool and the drinks. But in fall of 2023, the hotel finally saw the return of business travelers. That Monday through Thursday, like corporate traveler, is absolutely a pillar of our business success. Santiago says this year has been going well so far because another local business is doing well. People have been coming to see the Baltimore Ravens in the playoffs. In Baltimore, I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. Okay, last little macro tidbit about this economy for today. Moving from how the economy is actually doing to how people in this economy are feeling about how it's doing. Morning Consult is out with some consumer sentiment polling. And the big takeaway is that people do seem to have a much more positive outlook on the economy now than they have over the past couple of years. See also vibe expansion. But if you zoom in on the data as we are wont to do around here, You'll see the gap between how high earners and low earners are feeling is widening. Marketplace's Kristen Schwab took that one on. Through good times and bad, high earners always feel better about the economy than low earners do, says Joanne Shu, director of the surveys of consumers at the University of Michigan. People with higher incomes are just more equipped to handle downturns in the economy. What's interesting is that when those downturns happen, the sentiment gap between high and low earners narrows, and it narrowed more than ever in 2022. That's because even though inflation has had a bigger effect on low-wage workers, it's made everyone feel, well, kind of crappy. But in the last year or so, the gap has widened again, and it's driven by the opinions of people who are better off. Camelia Kunin is a professor of finance at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. As soon as times become better, we observe that high-income earners and those with a higher level of education become more optimistic about the future of the macroeconomy. She says that's mostly because of stock market performance. The S&P 500 has been breaking record highs. So if I'm a high-income earner, probably I have a job that comes with a 401k. The low-income earners, this is irrelevant to them, right? They don't, maybe they don't have any exposure at all to, to equity. The stock market is not the economy, and definitely not for people who don't participate in it. Over the years, the sentiment gap has fluctuated. But now it's turned into the Grand Canyon, and it may stay that way for a while. John Lear is chief economist at Morning Consult. I think there's a question of, you know, is this a feature of the U.S. economy or is it a bug? Lear says as income distribution in the U.S. widens, it's more likely to become a feature. I'm Kristen Schwab for Marketplace. Coming up. When you invest in communities, you can make everyone healthier. Which is what we want, right? Right. First, though, let's do the numbers. Dow Industrial is up 242 points today, almost two-thirds of 1%, finished at 38,049. The Nasdaq up 28 points, two-tenths percent, 15,510. 
The S&P 500 grew 25 points, about a half percent, 48 and 94 there. We heard from Stephanie Hughes about consumer spending. It was up notably on stuff like vehicles and hospitality. So in that mixed basket of stocks, Ford Motor gained 2.8% today. Dine Brand Global, which owns Applebee's, I didn't know that, grew 1.5%. Hilton Worldwide, up 2 and 2 tenths of 1% today. The airline scheduling data company OAG ranks on-time performance for airlines around the world. The on-timiest character, carrier. The on-timiest carrier. Come on, Kyle, you ruined the joke. Delta. 83.2% of its more than 1.6 million flights arrived on schedule. That, of course, does mean that almost 17% did not. Delta Airlines up 5 and 2 tenths percent today. Bonds rose yield on the 10-year T-note fell to 4.11%. You're listening to Marketplace. And now, a word from our sponsors at Betterment. No matter how hard of a worker you are, you probably like to kick back, relax, and just chill every now and then. But if you're an investor, that's the last thing you want your money to be doing. You want it to be out there working hard and kicking butt 24-7. That's exactly what the Betterment Automated Investment and Savings app can help it do. Betterment's automated technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help maximize returns. Tools like diversified expert-built portfolios of low-cost ETFs, high-yield cash accounts where your money can earn 11 times the national average, and automated investing technology like automated rebalancing. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdal. If you sold a median-priced home in this economy last year, $335,000 was the median. And remember, median is half above, half below. If you sold at that value, new research out today from the property data company Atom shows you cleared more than $120,000 in profit. That is about a 56.5% ROI, return on investment, which, while quite a tidy sum, is actually slightly less than what similar sellers made in 2022. Last year, in fact, was the first time that that number's dropped in more than a decade, but it's also double the profit that homeowners made just five years ago, which kind of does speak volumes about the American real estate market circa right now. Here's Marketplace's Samantha Fields. Nothing about the housing market of the last few years has been sustainable. We've never had such hot, fast price growth in a very short amount of time. It's completely abnormal. Logan Motoshami is lead analyst at Housing Wire. We went from, on average, 3 to 4 5% home price growth. We went 44% home price growth in four years. And that rate of growth was never going to last. But while it did, it made a lot of homeowners a lot of money. The fact that profits on homes are still really high, I really think that's been the primary reason why the housing market's been so resilient. Lisa Sturdivant, chief economist at Bright MLS, says even as mortgage rates hit a 23-year high last year, people kept buying homes. And I think a lot of it was, frankly, that homeowners had a tremendous amount of equity that they were able to roll into the purchase of their next home. Even now that the huge run-up in prices and equity has slowed, she says most homeowners are still in a good financial position. Jason Ward at Rand says the fact that so many people have built so much wealth this way has also fundamentally changed our society's relationship to homeownership. 30, 40, 50 years ago, people just sort of thought of like, can I afford this home? Is it where I want to live? If yes and yes, then you're going to buy it and that's good. Now you have people buy houses and think about it as sort of a gamble on wealth rather than a place to live. 
And he says that is having a knock-on effect on the housing market as a whole. When your housing value rises and rises and rises and it becomes this incredibly important part of your wealth, then you're also going to be a lot less friendly to, you know, say, policies that might encourage housing growth around you. Because you might be worried that building more houses will hurt the value of yours. I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace. There was a study out about a year ago from the Association of American Medical Colleges, which is a trade group basically for academic medicine, that showed less than 6% of doctors in this economy are black, 5.7% to take it out to a decimal place, which is, needless to say, not proportionate to the American population. That leads me to Dr. Uche Blackstock. She is now the CEO of a company called Advancing Health Equity. Before that, she was an emergency physician. She is also now an author. Her new book is called Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine. Dr. Blackstock, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks so much for having me. We're going to do uh, a little history up at the top here. And and the first thing I want you to do is um, tell me about your mom. Oh, my mother. My mother, she is the original Dr. Blackstock, and she was born and raised um, in Brooklyn, New York, in impoverished settings, and she became the first person in her family to go to college and then to go on to medical school, and she attended Harvard Medical School. As did, we should say, you and your sister, right? Yes, me and my twin sister. We also we we are the first black mother daughter legacy hmm. from Harvard Medical School. Okay, we're going to go a little farther back. I want you to tell me about the Flexner report and how it plays into the general topic of your book and what we're going to talk about today. Sure. So the Flexner report was a report that was commissioned in 1910 by the American Medical Association and the Carnegie Mellon Foundation, and essentially uh, they paid this educational specialist named Abraham Flexner to go around to 155 U.S. and Canadian medical schools and to assess them. And so if the schools didn't pass the test, then Abraham Flexner recommended that they be closed. And this unfortunately led to the closure of five out of seven of the historically black medical schools because of the legacy of slavery. And they just did not have the resources to be able to accommodate those standards. And what that led to is between 25,000 and 35,000 black physicians never being educated or trained. That is the estimated amount. And that's one of the reasons why we have such a lack of diversity among physicians in this country. So tell me what it's like for you to be a black physician with those numbers. Well, I'll say this. I grew up with a physician as a mom. She was a leader of a black women physician group in Brooklyn. And so for many years, I thought that most physicians were black women (laughs) until, you know, I got to college and medical school. And I realized that we actually are only about less than 3% of all physicians. And so 
it made me want to think about and research why this was the case. And what's wrong is, is, is the system, which puts barriers in the way in terms of access to opportunities, access to wealth. Those are blocks that my mother was able to overcome, but she was one of the few lucky ones, I would say. Yeah, just keeping on that theme of, of access to things, it's also about access to health. Because if those 35,000 black physicians had actually been able to be trained, one imagines that the the horrible health outcomes for black Americans today would be at least somewhat ameliorated. Exactly. And so we know that there are actually better outcomes when black patients are cared for by black physicians. They are more likely to leave the the physician-patient interaction with a, po- with a positive affect and the fact that we don't, we know that negatively impacts some of the health, health outcomes we see in black communities. Is that what you're trying to do w- with your company that you're running? Yes, yes. My company, Advancing Health Equity, and essentially we work with healthcare organizations to create more diverse, inclusive workplaces, but also to ensure that we are delivering racially competent care to our patients in all communities. This is going to sound flip, and I don't mean it to in any way, and it's a stock question that I ask entrepreneurs and small business people when I have them on this program, and so I will ask you, how's business? You know what? Business business is really good, and it's is, good is it, because things good are get, bad. I was just going to say, that's exactly what I was going to say. All right, so go ahead. Keep going. Yeah, and, and actually, you know, when the Black Lives Matter movement happened and when COVID happened, which revealed all of these deep fissures within our healthcare system, I have not been um, not busy since then. Essentially, there are so many healthcare organizations that you know, it's a good thing. It's a, you know, reassuring to see that they want to do the work. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's, it saddens me that, you know, racial health inequities are still such a major issue. And they're actually worsening over the last few years, even despite advances in innovation and technology. Do you think that um, the companies who are your clients, and this goes for companies throughout this economy, it goes for public media, it goes for everything. Do do you think they understand how hard the work is? You know, I think most don't. Um, And that's why when we first do our intake with our client organizations, like we want to talk to them about like what their expectations are. um, How are they allocating resources and funding to these these efforts and to recognize that there's no quick fix for a lot of these problems. And so, you know, one, two, three months of work is not going to fix the problem. And often we find that uh, we have much longer engagements with our client organizations because Mm. they realize that they need more time to affect change. Um, Health outcomes, as we talked about a minute ago, for black Americans, black women in particular, are are orders of magnitude worse than they are for for almost any other racial or ethnic group in this economy. And I guess I wonder um, how long do we have to fix that before it completely breaks, if it's not broken already? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we are doing overall as a country, we're doing poorly in terms of health outcomes, even when we compare ourselves to our other high income nations, our peer nations, even in terms of life expectancy, um, and so I would say, like, you know, things things are not looking good. You know, we need really um, urgent, 
urgent efforts to address what we're seeing. And I also think, and one of the really goals of my book is to connect the dots for people that, you know, health is really not just about what happens in the exam room or the clinic room between a patient and a physician. It really is about what's happening in the community in terms of employment, in terms of housing, in terms of education. So I, you know, I call on on policymakers, um, you know, business owners, really just to think about how do you invest in communities? Because when you invest in communities, you can make everyone healthier. I, uh, that is a hopeful note to end on, but sadly, I'm not going to be able to end there because I want to ask you, I started with your mom. I want to ask you about your sons. You say in this book, I even wonder if I would want my children to pursue careers in medicine. Why? You know, so yes, I, and I always say that if my children came to me and said they wanted to be doctors, we would have a a sit down, serious conversation. One, because I think that the healthcare system as we know it now is just very broken overall. A lot of my colleagues are not happy. They're looking for ways out. So that's one reason. But then also I would say as, you know, eventually as black men in that space, mm-hmm. I would want to make sure that they're able to be in environments where they can thrive, not just survive. And I had the experience when I was in academic medicine that I couldn't do that, that I had to be careful of what I said. I had to um, – I wasn't really being authentic. I was worried about retaliation. Mm. And so I want them to be in environments where they can be themselves and where they are valued and appreciated. And right now, I'm not sure that's the case, but that's why I, I founded my company, Advancing Health Equity, so we can create workplaces like that. This is none of my business, but if you had it to do all over again, would you? That's a good question. Um, some some days I would say yes. Some days I would say no. But I also recognize I'm in a very privileged position. I still do believe that being a physician, you know, you have the opportunity to really impact people's lives in, in, a, in a good way. You also, um, they tell you, your patients tell you things they don't even tell their closest mm-hmm. friends or family members. Like it is such a privileged opportunity. So um, I definitely want to show my appreciation for that. Dr. Uche Blackstock uh, is a physician. She's also an entrepreneur. Her company is called Advancing Health Equity. Dr. Blackstock, thanks for your time, ma'am. I, I do appreciate it. Thank you so much, Kai. This final note on the way out today, a counterpoint of sorts to the generally robust economic news of late. Some noteworthy layoff announcements the past 24 hours or so. Microsoft is going to cut 1,900 jobs in its gaming shop, which now you might remember includes Activision. Levi Strauss, the Blue Jeans people, going to cut 15% of its workforce. And the CEO of Paramount Global, the media conglomerate, said in an all-staff memo that the company needs to, and this is a quote, operate as a leaner company and spend less. No numbers or percentages given there. John Buckley, John Gordon, Rick Card, Ianta Parker, Amanda Petra, and Stephanie Seek are the Marketplace editing staff. Amir Bibawe is the managing editor. I'm Kai Rizdal. We will see you tomorrow, everybody. This is APM. We all want to be our best selves. 
but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Khreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.